0: All right, back on the Young Turks, a couple of comments first, then we'll go to our interview. Cognosco, this says, just three Democrats, Senators Doug Jones, Joe Manchin, and Kyrsten Sinema broke with their party to vote <sighs> against the proposal. And those are not surprising names. I told you, Kyrsten Sinema would be one of the worst Democrats in the entire Congress, and she's immediately living up to the billing. And Meg says, how much will the Green New Deal cost? A hell of a lot less than if we don't do it, <laughs> that's for sure. All right. Um, joining me in the studio now is Pilar Marrero. She uh, is co-host of the Pundets. Yes. And uh, and she's here to talk about Venezuela. Yes. Uh, so uh, we are trying to, we're trying really hard to have an honest conversation about Venezuela uh, that looks at all different sides without being biased in, in any direction. So uh, let's have a real conversation about how bad is it in Venezuela right now?
1: Well. I'm Venezuelan, first of all. I want to mm-hmm. make that clear. Um, I have many friends, family living there, uh, brothers, sisters, cousins, whatever. I've been living here for a long time, but I'm very much in contact with people there. The situation is, is very dire. Um, in terms of the economic situation, there's, um, in Venezuela, there's something that has, doesn't happen often in the world, which is six straight years of economic contraction. We have uh, the highest hyperinflation in the world. Um, and we have a government that has unfortunately become authoritarian and repressive. We are seeing a, um, a number of violations, human rights violations, as the UN human rights chief put it in her report last week. Um, there's very serious violations, um, killings of opposition leaders, jailings of journalists, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's 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 very hard to to watch uh, what's going on. I grew up in Venezuela in another time, in the seventies and eighties, and um, a lot of things have happened. But in re- the reality that we live today there, it's it's very very difficult, and there doesn't seem to be an easy way out of it.
0: So, do <clears throat> you agree with John Bolton that we should invade?
1: No, actually, I think most Venezuelans don't. Mm -hmm. I've seen poll after poll uh, that Venezuelans are obviously, uh, for a good reason, afraid of a military invasion, but at the same time, they're so desperate. I have conversations, for example, with with my brother, who's a very modern guy, not into politics at all. He works in a bank. And he's like, you know, I don't think Venezuela can stand the current situation any longer. There's a lot, you know, immediately when you talk about Venezuela— with progressives in the United States, you get you know you have to go to the conversation of intervention, sanctions. as a Venezuelan, I want people to know what's going on there. Let's set aside the issue of the United States history, which I know very well you know i've I'm a journalist, so I've covered the for example, the diasporas that have come to the United States over the years due to The wars and the interventions in El Salvador and Guatemala, I have many friends from Argentina, from Chile, I'm very well aware of all that. However, we need to look at Venezuela with um, very clear eyes and realize that the socialist experiment in Venezuela went beyond what was promised, or at least- or on the other hand, maybe it fell short of what was promised. And what it's turned into, it's, it's a real disaster. There's a humanitarian crisis. There's at least four million Venezuelans have left the country at this point. The projection is that up to eight million may end up leaving. And it's a very small country, it's only 30 million people.
0: So Pilar, uh, <clears throat> I have trouble discerning what's happening on the ground, yes. uh, which is similar to the situation in Syria. Because they have so much propaganda on both sides. Yes. And so um, you know you got the right wing neocons in this country,
1: yes.
0: and you know uh, with John Bolton writing send in troops on his notepad, and that's what I'm referring to. Sure. And I don't trust Trump for a second, and he puts out a, a tweet. Neither do I. Yeah. Uh, right <laughs> after Guaido. Uh, Guaido. Uh, what is it? Guaido. Guaido. Okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, Guaido uh, comes out and says, I'm now the new president. So he's obviously coordinating with the US and that's problematic uh, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't really trust their version of the story. And then when we found out, of course, that, uh, for example, the burning of the trucks, it, that was not Maduro. Yeah. It was actually the opposition. Yeah. Uh, so uh, on the other hand, I don't trust Maduro, <laughs> and, and unfortunately, some people, are taking what he says as gospel, which I think is crazy. I, I don't know why you would, I mean, he's a politician at a bare minimum, right? Uh, let alone one that has created what it appears to be, at a, again, at a bare minimum, a gigantic mess in Venezuela. So then how do I know what's actually happening?
1: You talk to Venezuelans like me, people who are connected there, who are not really ideological. I'm, I'm a progressive, You know, I'm someone who has been in this country for a while, who is an immigration reporter. Um, who have had many ties with progressives all my life. Um, And by any means, most Venezuelans I know personally are not conservative or Trump uh, supporters. Uh, But the problem is that when we talk about Venezuela and we say what's happening there is not what you think is happening. Uh, we really need to see a change into, uh, we, really, we really need to see new elections in Venezuela. The last the last two elections that were celebrated there by Maduro were uh, extremely problematic, uh, I would say straight out fraud, uh, fraudulent. And um, this is the reason why the opposition, I think, and the opposition actually is a very broad group of people. There's a number of parties that go from the left. To the moderate right, there's no really hard right in Venezuela. And I think it's a problem to look at what the opposition is doing only through the eyes of the United States. You need to set that aside a little bit, and particularly because you see there's a geopolitical fight going on. There's The Russians were uh, just in the news because they flew two military planes into the civil airport of Maiketia, Right outside of Caracas this weekend with the Minister of Defense of Russia, a hundred officers and who knows what cargo so they've sold eleven billion dollars in weapons to Venezuela over the last ten years so there's a level in which there's a geopolitical like neo cold war going on there, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I want people to look at the at Venezuelans and their situation, and, and you know, whenever a Venezuelan speaks out about this, we get called right wing and pro-Trump and pro-imperialist and all that. And it's very sad to see that that kind of reaction. I want people to kind of be more clear-eyed and realize that maybe that guy says he's on your side ideologically, but maybe he's not, and maybe he's just another fascist.
0: Yeah. So, um, what do we do now? That's the most difficult question.
1: I, I think that if progressives, if people who want, who have the principles of justice, um, don't get engaged in the reality of Venezuela and don't push their own government and the government of Maduro into a democratic transition of in Venezuela or at least into some kind of negotiation, you're going to leave it all up to the right wing and. Who knows what can happen? I I don't, like you, I don't trust Trump either. I'm I'm nothing, you know, nothing close to a Trump supporter. Um, But I I feel that progressives, not all, but many, um, their immediate reaction is to shut me off and say, ah, it's the United States, it's all about the sanctions, when real sanctions actually didn't start happening until 2017, and the oil sanctions didn't happen until two months ago. Venezuela was- a partner, a trade partner of the United States until two months ago. So there's no sanctions. Some uh, Somebody told me the other day there's an embargo. I think they're confusing Venezuela with Cuba. There's no embargo. So there's a mm-hmm. lot of responsibility on the government of Venezuela for yeah. the mess that were So in. the
0: economic disaster began before the sanctions. Um, it did. But now the sanctions, at the, at the same time, I'm torn on that. And so am I. So it, it certainly doesn't help the people of Venezuela. On the other hand, it creates pressure on Maduro. Yes. So. It's quite intractable. Uh, so, how about Guaido? Do you do you support what he did or no?
1: I, you know, there's. I think a lot of Venezuelans are now putting their trust on Guaido, according to some polls that I've seen, because it's an alternative. You know, it's the guy mm-hmm. who's there. He's speaking with a very different voice than the Maduro. You know, the Maduro government. The Maduro government is very, very. Um, uh, it's very strong in their rhetoric it 's very negative in their in their rhetoric and um, and guaido gave you know i think a plausible constitutional explanation for his swearing in as let 's say president or interim president, which is Maduro committed fraud in the last election he essentially uh, the last time the national assembly was elected in two thousand and fifteen when the opposition gained the majority for the first time since one thousand nine hundred and ninety eight he essentially went around it and said those elections were not good, I'm gonna pick the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court is gonna say the assembly cannot govern. So he went around them and created this constituent assembly that is governing instead. So they're saying he's he's illegitimate and, and there's an argument for that I think.
0: John Bolton went on Fox News and said, um, we are looking forward to protecting American business interests there,
1: mm-hmm. including
0: the American oil companies. No, I you know, and so they're back in Guaido. I can't have us doing a you know, an unofficial coup of Maduro back Guaido and Guaido comes in and goes, uh, congratulations, mission accomplished, ExxonMobil gets all the oil. <laughs> so I you know, but I, I can't have that. I can't have the status quo because Maduro's you know, killing the country. There's extrajudicial killings. Yes, uh, a million uh, kids are not going to school anymore. Right. It's an absolute disaster. Yeah. I, it's as big a no-win situation as as you could almost Let imagine. Let me tell you
1: something about the history of oil in Venezuela. When it was found in the early 20th century, of course, a lot of concessions were given to American companies. But there were concessions. They were not the owners of the oil. Oil was nationalized. Not by Hugo Chavez, but by the president he launched a coup against, Carlos Andres Perez, in the 70s. Since then, the company, PDVSA, the oil company has, of course, is completely in the hands of, of the Venezuelan people, of the Venezuelan government, and essentially has been used as a piggy bank of the government of Chavez and Maduro. It's now in tatters. The production of oil is, it's, has essentially uh, become has come down significantly because they haven't reinvested. Um, They're uh, de-professionalized the company by taking out the engineers and the people who actually knew their job uh, and put political people and military people instead. It's it's a real mess. Uh, The electric grid doesn't work. Uh, We have blackouts again yesterday and today. And Maduro keeps saying it's sabotage,
0: it's no sabotage. No, nah, it's, yeah, it's ridiculous. So look, one thing that Guaido could do to earn credibility, which he almost certainly will not do, and I don't know what his real motives are, is he could say, look, I wanna be clear, if I get in charge, I'm gonna do two things. One is we will have a real election. I'm only the interim president, I will definitely- That's what
1: he said he was gonna do.
0: Okay, yeah, all right. And so is he not going to run?
1: He said he's not going to run.
0: Okay. Yes. And then, again, the question is, do you believe him? Which leads to point number two, which is equally important. Under no circumstances will any American oil companies get any contracts with Venezuela. Now, if he says that and America still supports him, okay, right? Again, if you can trust him. But he's not gonna say that, cuz then America would go- yeah.
1: Actually, I think the Trump administration's attitude has, yes, probably something to do with all, but I think it has to do more with 2020 and the elections and saying, "Oh, we won against socialism, right? Because you saw it in the State of the Union, he talked about Venezuela, and then he turned and said, and the Democrats are like Venezuela, right?
0: No, I know it's partly that, but uh, Pilar, let's keep it real. Uh, the Trump administration and all the neocons are on the war path on, against two countries, Iran and Venezuela. There's only one thing that connects those two countries, oil, okay? so And there's one country we invaded, Iraq, oil, okay? North Korea, we ain't gonna invade, okay? Because they don't have any oil. So it's definitely, definitely about the oil.
1: Uh, If you ask a lot of Venezuelans today, would you mind having the American companies go in instead of having your freedom and a good government that will not torture you and kill you and starve you? A lot of people will say yes. Yes,
0: but the problem is when the American oil companies come, or even American banana companies, they also bring the torture and the human rights abuses. It's and already
1: there. Okay, um, so it it, it it barely can get any worse than it is now.
0: Not a great way to solve it, but <laughs> okay.
1: no, no, no. But um, I I don't think what I don't think why Doe would be I don't think why Doe would. Um, Present himself. He has said he's just going to be an interim president. And of course, the problem is how do we incorporate all the different parties and whether we incorporate Chavistas or not? That's going to be a sticking point there. I know. I know it's going to be very difficult. Other countries have done it. You know, after dictatorships and and very harsh, you know, wars and things like that, it's happened. So I think it can happen in Venezuela.
0: Yeah. I mean, look. uh, However, we put pressure on. Minus uh, war uh, to make sure there are real elections in Venezuela, because that last election was not real. And release the political prisoners, let anyone run except Guaido, okay? Because he has to have credibility. That's why. I'm not against Guaido in that sense. I'm saying you need him to have credibility that he's not doing it for his own power, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, uh, I, I think handing it over to America is not the right answer. But the current situation is also definitely not the right answer.
1: Uh, yeah, and we don't want the Russians and the Cubans there either. And they are there.
0: Yes, and, the and so that's the deal Maduro made, <laughs> yes. yes. So this is the, the Venezuelan people being squeezed between these different power players like Russia and the US. The US does not necessarily have your best interests in mind, but neither does Russia. So if you're a progressive and you think, no, Putin is a good guy with, I agree with George W. Bush. I looked into his eyes and he has a good soul, and he cares about the people of Venezuela. You are officially nuts if you believe that. You also are nuts if you think that's what Trump thinks. Neither one of them thinks that, okay? So we gotta find a way to protect the people of Venezuela. Pilar, thank you for coming and having this conversation. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yep. Uh, All right, we gotta take a quick break. When we come back, another great guest for you guys. All right, back on the Young Turks, another uh, amazing, fascinating guest for you guys. Joining me now is Jake Johnson. He is a research associate at CEPR. He's got an amazing story about uh, mercenaries who were caught in Haiti doing God knows what. Let's try to find out. Jake, welcome to the Young Turks.
2: Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: No problem. So uh, what happened down in Haiti? Who got caught? Uh, Who were they And and then let's try to guess at what in the world they were doing down there.
2: Yeah, fair enough. So it all started February 17th down in Haiti. This is happening in the context. There had been riots, street barricades, calling for the president's resignation for almost a week at that point. And then all of a sudden, this group of Americans got arrested. And the news sort of just filtered out very quickly all across social media and everything pictures of this large cache of weapons, semi-automatic rifles, drones, satellite phones, and these guys were in jail in Haiti, and nobody really had any idea what was happening. And so in the next couple of days, you know, really was just sort of rumor mill, everyone wondering what was happening, every possible story imaginable. And I was down at the Haiti at the time on uh, Wednesday, so about three days later, and myself and a bunch of reporters were down at the courthouse waiting for their first appearance in court when we found out they were actually on their way to the airport uh, and turned out that night, escorted by US embassy personnel were flown on a commercial flight back to Miami and let go with no charges. So leaving a ton of questions about what exactly these guys were doing in Haiti, uh, and why the US interfered to remove them from Haiti without facing ever, without ever facing a judge.
0: Yeah, well, here's what I can tell you uh, from what we know from the story so far, uh, the American government was very okay with what they were about to do before they got caught in Haiti because uh the American government doesn't go around going oh there was four people with a ton of weapons uh that were going to apparently do something nefarious near a central bank i'm desperate to get them out <laughs> unless they have some connection to the to the us okay and so but it wasn't just four americans right there was also two serbian uh, nationals and a haitian driver is that correct yeah that's right Okay, and now one of them is talking to the press and saying, no, we're not mercenaries. We were going there to do general security. Um, so is that even plausible? I mean, who, with yeah, all that well, weaponry, I mean, Well it's just seven guys. And what were they doing near the central bank?
2: Right, I mean, I'm forgetting, putting aside the weaponry, I mean, if you just look at this guy's story, which was, you know, We were there just to do regular security work, and then we were going to bring a businessman to the central bank to sign some $50 million contract. Uh, Any number of problems with that. Uh, Why would you need a security team to go sign a contract? Why would you be going to the central bank to sign a contract? This is not a commercial bank. It's not somewhere where you would actually do this. Uh, So even that story, you know, no, it doesn't really make any sense at all. Now, the other sort of theory that's been put out there, this was in an Intercept article last week from a source claiming direct knowledge of the situation and alleged that they were going to the bank to transfer $80 million to the president's bank account. But even there, uh, you know, what do you need the guns for? What do you need these guys to actually go do this? Uh, You know, my own reporting indicates that there were actually, uh, you know, some awareness within the bank and high level bank officials that something was going on here. Uh, And so why would you need these heavily armed former military guys to go make a bank transaction?
0: Yeah, and uh, they're ex-Navy SEALs. So uh, here's what you don't need when signing a contract, ex-Navy SEALs. It's, <laughs> I think that's when, right. When you sign the contract, no one actually exchanges money. So that is the worst cover story I have ever heard. You can sign a contract anywhere. It's There's no bags of money to protect. So, all right, so- what they're saying is clearly not true, but what the reality is, is, is an obviously an interesting question. Now, uh, but Jake, let me continue. So they get back to the US, the US bails them out immediately, at least the four Americans. Uh, do you know what happened to the Serbians?
2: No, they were brought back as well, and they were lawful permanent residents, as far as I understand, with a green card, and, and they were also brought back to the United States, same commercial flight as, as the American citizens.
0: Okay, so uh, yeah, and by the way, I know. Ex-Serbian military guys also going on normal tourist trips to Haiti all the time filled with weaponry. I'm sure everything was just hunky-dory. Anyway, so they get back here, but since they were arrested by the government of Haiti near the central bank with all that weapons, and they've apparently done a number of things that are in violation of Haitian law, I'm sure we're pursuing charges against them now, right?
2: Yeah, well, it appears not. Uh, So the reporting, at least, you know, the government has not said anything, has not, you know, given us any information about what the nature of the mission was, what happened, anything. But the reporting indicates at this point that, you know, there will be no charges. And that's certainly what they are, or at least the one, uh, you know, member of this team who's been talking to the press has been saying is that they did nothing wrong, so they're free to go.
0: Okay, I'm picturing a Mission Impossible type of movie now, where the whole thing is you get all these the baddest guys in the world, and you put them together in this mega team so someone can sign a contract. <laughs> That's not how the movie exactly. goes. All right, so let's try to figure out what's happening in the, in the real world. So what happened to the prime minister recently in Haiti?
2: Yeah, exactly. And so I think, you know, when you look at this case, right, it's not just about these Americans who are detained. I mean, obviously, that set off something much bigger. But what it revealed was a lot of very interesting things. You know, one, the U.S. relationship with Haiti and how that's been changing over the last couple of months Two, an open conflict between the prime minister and the president. And so that's, you know, again, where you react about with the prime minister. Two days after they were detained, the prime minister gave an interview to CNN, and he referred to them as terrorists and mercenaries that were in the country to assassinate him. Uh, now, not many people took you know, a ton of stock in that, but it was very clear that this was a political crisis and a political problem between the president and the prime minister sort of exploding out into the public. And at a time with civil unrest and when people calling for the president's resignation, clearly that's not really a great look, right? Uh, So there was some interest there, right? I mean, just in terms of getting them out of the country, sort of covering up what it is, it was letting this sort of ease down a little bit, putting the lid back on top. Now, last week, the prime minister was uh, called before the Senate to actually answer questions about this case. And that same day uh, before that could even take place, the lower house met and had a vote of no confidence. So basically ousting the prime minister, who is now uh, officially out of the picture. Uh, sort of clearing the way for the President, and so certainly that has been the sort of political ramifications now again, these people the the president and Prime Minister, were obviously in a political battle and a fight for power before this ever exploded into the scene, but obviously it exposed something or threatened to expose something that certainly was problematic in that relationship okay
0: <laughs> so if you 're not uh- following Haitian politics closely, and I have to confess that I'm in that category, uh, this does get a bit confusing. So uh, is the prime minister the bad guy or the good guy? <laughs>
2: right? I'm not sure there are good guys or bad guys in this story, right? As much as many competing interests, all with various you know interests at play here, uh, but nobody has an interest in actually telling the Haitian people or the American people for that matter what actually happened.
0: So, Jake, I get that, and of course, the world is full of nuance, and uh, and so I'm not looking at it in a black and white or, or binary way. But do we think the mercenaries were there to help or hurt the prime minister's cause?
2: Yeah, well, certainly, what they said is that they were working for business and close to the government, close to the president, uh, and so you know what it looks like. And certainly, if if these sort of stories are true, that there was something with the bank, some sort of contract or some movement of money or systems or information. It was clear the prime minister thought that he could use it to his political advantage.
0: Okay, so then what are the possible theories as to why the mercenaries were down there? So the prime minister says they were here to assassinate me. The mercenaries say we were having a fun picnic while somebody was gonna sign something. Okay, so I don't know. Look, I discount what the mercenaries say. I don't discount what the prime minister says, it's not like the Americans haven't assassinated leaders in that region of the world before, we have, so I don't know, okay, so what are the other options?
2: Yeah, well, certainly, I mean, there's been basically everything floated, right? I mean, you've had, again, this protest movement building for about six months now in Haiti, and in the context of that, there have been a number of extraditional killings, protesters being shot. There were pictures of foreigners in palace guard uniforms back in November. So certainly there's been a big concern and, a, you know, a, a big sort of talking point here that, you know, maybe these were the people who were brought to Haiti to kill protesters, to repress protesters. Now, we don't have anything to indicate that that's the case, but certainly in the absence of any concrete story or any real official explanation of what they were doing, it's no surprise that, you know, Haitians would, would jump to that conclusion.
0: So, who lives in the royal palace in Haiti—the president or the prime minister?
2: No, this is the president. And you know what you have to understand in terms of this, right? is As part of this political crisis that's been engulfing Haiti for the last six months, the president lost his previous prime minister, and as part of a political compromise, named John Henry Seyant, who was a member of the opposition, to become prime minister. So you had somebody from the opposition and somebody—you know—the president. And obviously from different political backgrounds and really fighting for control of the government, right? But the prime minister obviously lost that fight. Okay,
0: and so and the Americans then appear to be on the president's side.
2: Yes, that's certainly what everything indicates is that they were working with somebody close with the president. And if you look at who they were working with on the ground in Haiti, and this is, I think, one of the most important things that have sort of come out of this, is the main people they were working with, their liaisons in Haiti, were these two businessmen. Josué Lacan and Jessner Champagne. Now, these guys are very close with the ruling party figures, the current president as well as the former president Michel Martelly. If you look at Champagne, this guy met them at the airport. Uh, he was arrested in 1996 on arms trafficking charges, and it was actually the former president Michel Martelly who paid his bail at that moment. Yeah. So, again, these are this is a, a crew, a clique of people who are extremely close with the ruling party, right? And so we know that we know they were working closely. But again. Why are you working with these sort of, you know, small-time businessmen who nobody really knows about? Uh, if this is an official contract or official government business, why is nobody simply saying that or telling the truth about what's happening?
0: Okay, uh, I'm near a conclusion. Uh, I'm going to guess that the armed mercenaries were, in some ways, in cahoots with the arm dealer. Um- <laughs> So that's my guess, uh, and and the rule, and the ruling party, uh, and, and that's where the corruption leads to. Uh, but if you want to get uh, more details, real details, rather than my guesses, uh, check out Jake Johnson's reporting on this at CEPR.net. Jake, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, So, uh, we're out of time, but we have two uh, great things for you guys in uh, the post game. One is uh, something that happened to me related to Game of Thrones today that was super cool. And number two is uh, a fun little experiment I did on Twitter today, and how did it go? You're gonna love that story. Uh, So that's for the members, tyt.com slash
2: join to become a member,
0: we'll see you over there.